Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. This is our second week in IndyCar episode of the week. Who do we have on the other line? The French fry to my hamburger. Possibly the worst parent and husband in IndyCar this week. Completely forgotten about them. Doesn't care about them anymore. Why? He's too busy playing damn iRacing Barber Motorsports Park. I'm glad you could spare a moment for us, you terrible, terrible person. Well, you're just making me more terrible because you're consuming more of my time. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Sebastian Bourdais drops the mic to begin. I love it. How you doing, my man? How you doing? Uh, Yeah, I guess we're... We're doing okay in this uh, crazy uh, situation, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely. Uh, I wish I wish I could be driving a race car instead of <laughs> trying to be a halfway respectable uh, video game. But uh, that's that's all we got for now. So did you just finished making dinner for the family, right? So you redeemed yourself a little bit. Yeah, and and I wish the dishes too. So I think uh, I think I'm, I'm slowly getting out of the the shit list. Good. I mean, hey, the fact that you would go out, drive through, go through the drive through at Kentucky Fried Chicken and bring something home for your family. I mean, that that's love right there. Hey, homemade, homemade croque monsieur, uh, Marshall Pruitt. So, you know, cut it out. All right. Look at that. We got good old Chef Boyar Bourdais here. I love it. All right. Well, we got a bunch of questions and we should pose them to you. And uh, some of them might be for me. Folks don't come here for me, though. They they they're, they got enough hamburger. Trust me. They need their French fry. So let's go with Jordan Darwin. So, Seb, what are your days like with this shelter-in-place order becoming more widespread around the USA? What's, what's a uh, day like for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, basically uh, doing more miles on my bicycle than I probably have in the last... 10 years um probably and uh yeah no i mean it's just it's just sucks because we're just really trying to be good and and not see friends and and whatnot and staying away from everybody but uh thankfully we can you know still ride and and go outside and things which is obviously uh, far better than europe because you know, my parents right now they, they can't even get out of their house without um you know, a certificate and they have one a day and you have to stay a kilometer away from your house. And, and if you don't obey, you get a, <laughs> you get a ticket. So, uh, yeah, wow. it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, but, uh, desperate times, desperate measures, I guess. So what is it like having kids at home who need to be educated probably need to be entertained and distracted a little bit before we started recording your son was chasing the cat around the house so i guess that's a bit of fun but it's not although our lives lack the normal structure we've had it's not as if you can just have no structure at home what's it like for you and claire having to create structure for kids kind of on the fly yeah, I mean, it's obviously challenging. I mean, Emma is 13 years old now. She she takes care of herself. She's really busy. She's taking all the dance classes, uh, virtual uh, and everything. So she keeps herself real busy. And then, you know, she's independent, you know, that she can take care of uh, the school program and everything. Uh, but obviously with Alex, 
it's a uh, it's a little different um you know you you gotta you gotta keep him busy you gotta help him a little bit with school and and everything so it's it's definitely more challenging and uh the i racing stuff is definitely very time consuming uh, i've never played before and uh trying like i said trying to uh put in the work in the hours to be at least somewhat respectable uh hasn't worked out so good so far but uh um you know we'll, we'll keep at it and uh and so it's pretty pretty tough on claire to um Keeping, uh, keeping on track uh, with the school program. Mm. Well, let's go to iRacing. Got a number of questions here. First one is from Beer Cat. It says, Seb, given the lack of, quote, butt dyno, backside feedback, how difficult is setting up and tuning a car in iRacing compared to the real world? Well, it's all fixed setup. So you have to drive what it is, which is a good thing because it's complicated enough to even just like, extract you know the, the the most out of whatever car you're given um so it's really yeah the, the big thing is uh in, in case you haven't figured out my vision isn't exactly my forte um <laughs> and and it's all eyes <laughs> this is all it is um so i mean uh, thankfully I, I managed to get my hands on a on a fanatic uh, kit uh, with the wheel and, and the pedals um, I ran the first one at Tristan Vautier's uh, rig, but I mean, obviously you can't do that. Uh, just, you know, <laughs> can't just go to his place and squat his rig. So, uh, um, so yeah, it's just, uh, it's just been very challenging. Um, I guess, uh, I guess I don't have those like multi screens and everything. I just have one fairly decent TV in front, but, um, uh, it's, it's hard. It's just really hard. Cause I, yeah, I, I guess I drive a lot more with feel than than sight, and uh, and I think I'm I'm not the only one. But the consistency and 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 really getting to feel what what you're doing that's that's the critical and, and difficult part. And uh, you know I, I can't pretend that I even have the wheel set right and and you know all the torque and feedback and everything. Um, I'm still still kind of fine tuning that. So it's. It's even more time consuming, but it's it's all about details and and hours. And obviously, uh, there are quite a few guys that have been uh, that have been on that platform for for many years, and uh, and it, they're definitely really good at it. So the next couple questions on iRacing, I should preface. So speaking with someone at IndyCar today, and was told that uh, the next time a driver wants to say something critical of iRacing, or say that it it isn't feeling exactly like an indie car uh please let us know first uh because apparently some folks there didn't like scott dixon's comments about hey it's not real and uh i'm not really being able to jive with it but regardless amanda bauer says seb for drivers that are normally not gamers like yourself how is i racing uh, she asks is it enjoyable for you or is it just something that you're doing to fill the gap as indie car is engaging in eye racing. Well, I think like most of the guys who haven't, you know, were either not very good, which I guess I'm one of them, or that I've never done it, which you know, one equals the other, really. Uh, it's very, uh, very rare that you got one guy that just kind of hits the thing running and 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 is really good at it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's it's enjoyable. It's mostly frustrating because like you just make mistakes and you keep crashing and you, you try and make lap time and and you crash some more and so and we're all competitive obviously uh, 
you know, we're all thrown into this, um, into something that we don't control very well, that we don't know very well, and, and we all want to do well. So, uh, so yeah, it's mostly frustrating trying to uh, fill the, the gap and, and give something to watch to the fans and stay engaged. But, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that so far. I've really enjoyed myself. I spend a huge amount of time on it. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it feels a lot more work than uh, going to the racetrack and, and having fun in the race car. So Eric asks another question that I'm sure is going to get me yelled at even more says seb what would you say were the biggest differences between the real indy car you drive and the one you're learning to drive on i racing he says i spend a lot of time in that car on i racing and i'm always wondering either just how accurate it is or what the main differences are to the real car well it's just like you know software wise it's tough to say because like everything's static obviously um there are three stages of reality. Uh, so you have the real, the, the real world, the car. Okay. So that, that's, that's what we know. That's what we've grown with. Then you go to a real simulator that's got motion. That's got a tire model that has, you know, all the, the post-processing and, and, you know, the correlation with the reality and, and everything. And obviously you need a lot of data crossover and, and repeatability is, is key. And it takes a huge amount of work. It, you know, it takes engineers and, and teams of engineers and days and sometimes years to get it close enough that you can actually cross the reality, the virtuality and, and the reality. Um, and you know, when we go to the Chevy simulator, for example, you know, it, it still takes time to just kind of switch from the real world mode to the semi virtual mode. Um, and this is something that costs zillions of dollars. I mean, this is, you know, outer space technology. And, and then you take it to a completely static, um, game initially which obviously they've grown and, and they've developed this thing you know to a point where it's i mean there definitely are some some cross references but the fact that you're completely relying on eyes and and a little bit on the steering and obviously you know the the, the hardware uh, suppliers have, have worked really hard as well to to come up with technologies to you know give you the force feedback and but there are still like so many intricate details that you need to fine tune. And, and that's why I was saying, like, I'm pretty sure like there's still plenty of things on the wheel itself. Like it's capable of doing a lot of things, but there are so many adjustments you can make that, uh, you know, it's still got a ton of kicking. That's not real. Uh, you can't let go of the wheel. Otherwise it'll rattle your wrists, you know, it's just stuff like that, which obviously doesn't happen in real life. And there are a lot of things that don't happen in real life. And I think that happen in real life that just don't happen, um, you know, obviously in the game. And so you kind of have to just completely put that aside and just drive in a very different style and, and learn the game. And that's that's why, you know, it's a kind of a specialist thing because because it just doesn't relate to what we know. But it's super real and it's awesome and you would love to do nothing other than spend 24 hours a day doing eye racing says sebastian well, I'm definitely definitely not doing 24 hours man you could have just but... killed me on your answers you were nice to me see that's why i like you uh let's see 
I, I think we know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, Paul Trahan, Seb, now that you've completed your first iRacing event, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you for the next one? <laughs> I mean, it, um, yeah, I feel better prepared, um, but it's also a much more um, difficult track. Uh, obviously, Watkins fast, but it's flowy, it's wide. Um, it's not super tricky. There's not much curve action other than the bus stop. Now you get to Bobber and the track is narrow. Um, it chews tires pretty good. Um, uh, so there's quite a bit of degradation. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of curbing action and blind spots, which on the game, you know, like even in reality, it's a tough track. Don't get me wrong. And that's why we have like the poles at a couple of corners uh, to indicate where the apexes are and stuff. And like, yeah, in the game, you don't have the poles and, and you can't, you know, kind of lift yourself up a little bit just to try and, and get a bit of a viewpoint or anything. It's, it's hard. So it's, it's definitely, I think a lot more tricky. Uh, it's still like, I'm still kind of gaining maybe a tenth to a day. <laughs> Just, wow. just to tell you how stupid this is. But I mean, how uh, many hours per tenth, right? I mean, that's the crazy yeah, well, thing. I mean, it's, that's the thing. Like, it's it's probably, I'd say right now, I'm probably at, uh, on average, just throwing a number, maybe two hours a tenth. <laughs> yeah. And and 20,000 crashes in between. So, uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge when I'm telling you it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's, it's work right now. Like it's not, and, and it would be fun if, if it wasn't obviously the competition of it, but you know, like I said, we're all, we're all very competitive and we'll want to do well. So then I'm not going to tell you that I heard from our friend, Robert Wickens that within one hour of him using his new sim rig, he was within seven tenths of the fastest lap turned. Granted, that's a SimCraft rig with full motion and all kind like, you know, uh, it probably costs more than our family car. But anyways, um, I won't tell you that. Yeah, I mean, and, that's, and that's the thing. And like, like, it, like I was telling you, if, yeah, I'm sure if I have, you know, the time or the knowledge or whatever to, you know, get that wheel, because it's, it's the best wheel there is from Fanatec. Like it's that whatever podium DD one wheelbase, whatever it's, it's a great thing. I mean, you can tell it's got a lot of capacities, but it just like, I don't even know, like it's got the base set up on it. Every time I try and change something, it becomes undrivable. So I kind of given up on it, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's definitely big differences in, in the rig setups and, and who's using what and, uh, I'll, I'll shoot you a picture. You're probably going to laugh. So for those of us who have no grasp of what kind of money can get thrown into a sim rig and knowing that you've been smart, you're a smart man with your money. You don't just go insane, but what have you seen in terms of options? Like if you decided I am going to go nuts, I'm going to be financially irresponsible and just go truly every single thing i'm going to max out and get the top of the line how much do you think you could spend on a sim rig uh i don't know but i mean i've heard anything from like 50 to 100,000 or whatever <laughs> and it's like you know it's but but there is no limit to you know when you start to obviously have the 
the the rig you know activated and 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 in motion and everything then there's there's no limit to how much money you can spend um that's that's pretty clear uh right now i'm sitting in my ikea chair which is my uh 49 inches tv on an ikea piece of furniture and a 120 dollar stand that's hosting a a thousand dollar wheel and uh, a four hundred dollar pedal box. So that's that's my setup in a and a, a power unit. Uh, uh, the the computer that uh, I got at uh, Walmart for six hundred dollars. There you go. That's my setup. Wow! I was so hoping you're going to tell me that you're using a joystick. That would just be the best. No, I, I tried. I mean, Arnie was really cool at IndyCar. He sent us something, but I mean that. But that was. It was a Trustmaster T three hundred whatever, and and that's cool to play PlayStation, but not to go after those guys that are, <laughs> that are real real into iRacing and and have some some pretty proper equipment. Wow. Well, let's go to uh, another series of questions here. Not about iRacing. Uh, it's maybe I don't know. We'll see. What we get this comes from our pal Bryson Frank. It says Seb. With most of the races you are scheduled to run in IndyCar being canceled or postponed, what is your plan for the rest of the year once things get going again? Will you potentially be running some different races? I don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, you wrote the, the article with, with uh, what uh, Larry told you and, and everything. I mean, right now, the, the plan is completely fluid. There is there's obviously a a desire from both sides to try and, and prove, you know, do something next year. And, uh, and what is 2020 going to look like? I, I don't know. I mean, right now, um, how long is this situation going to last? Um, I think, you know, until we can answer that question and that's obviously not going to be Easter. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I just, I, I got no idea. I hope it's, I hope for everybody's sake that this, this, you know, gets resolved quickly. But in the meantime, I think we're all going to see that as soon as they reopen, you know, the borders and, and the circulation of people, that thing's going to kick right back into gear. And uh, I think until we either have a vaccine or we get people to uh, all be immune to it, um, I think we're not done talking about that stupid virus for sure. My plan to get Dr. Helmut Marco sick and see how he does. I guess that plan's not going super well right now. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, he had, a, he had a quite an interesting idea. Just do no compromise over there. You know, it, it, it wasn't lost on me that a guy from Austria in the 1940s had an idea of experimenting on humans. And I'm like, Helmet, that's a little bit on the nose, brother. It's a little <laughs> bit on the nose, my man. Yeah, uh, the wrong flag. Yeah. Yes, that, that really. I thought we learned. I thought history told us. No, don't do that anymore. Uh, I guess I never thought to think this until our man Lance Snyder asked here a question similar one about a bit of a roller coaster and uncertainty. Has anything that you went through, Seb, when you had your Formula One season cut short? and had to figure out next steps for you it's having to go through that process at all i don't know if i want to say it's been a help but at least having gone through some of the oh crap i got to improvise a bit has that been of any value going through this during the most recent off season coming into uh, where we are now uh i guess every challenge builds your experience um you know in some kind of ways uh, did it help me i i don't know i mean 
I'm I'm a true believer that obviously uh, you gotta create your opportunities, but opportunities are what dictate obviously um, drivers' careers. And uh, so far, I've been very fortunate. Um, <laughs> the November uh, uh, little uh, chain of uh, of events obviously uh, <laughs> didn't really set me up for the best thing in in 2020. But um, now, hold on, what happened during the? I, I am forgetting what happened during the off season. I don't know. I think I, I may have lost my ride. But uh, oh, come on! Oh, I thought. But, uh, oh yeah, crap! Yes. Oh, dude, I'm <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. We're having a nice conversation. I just ruined it. <laughs> You're such an ass. <laughs> Anyways, but see, but you're uh, a survivor. That's why we love you. You people yeah, throw yeah, crap yeah, yeah. at you and you refuse to lay down. Even if you can't see, even if you revealed you're a little bit blind. I mean, that's even more impressive all the wins you've gotten and you haven't been able to see. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Let's just put it this way. I, if I trusted in my eyes all the time, I guess I would not have gone very far. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, man, I don't know. It's just, um, just, just a weird a weird uh, off season, a non season so far, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, I guess we got uh, Daytona, a test at Sebring here and there, and um, and then uh, our card for kids event, and and that was the only race that occurred that weekend, and and so far, really, uh, the last one that happened in in 2020. Wow, let's go to Kyle Donnelly. So Seb. We've heard for two years straight after Indianapolis, if only it had been 80 degrees instead of 90 degrees, the race would have been brilliant. He says, now that we're likely to have surface of the sun temperatures with the Indy 500 in August, curious, what do you think teams, drivers, IndyCar, Kara Adams at Firestone, any idea what folks might need to think about to put on a good show if we are indeed going to be roasting in August? You know what? The good thing for me, I ain't going to be running that one. So he doesn't care. I like that. <laughs> that is that is French fries so prerogative. I'm not going to jump into that conversation and that argument because, honestly, I got no idea. But, yes, I do agree that losing a significant amount of mechanic grip uh, in August is going to be a challenge that there is, that's no lie. You need to come and hang out with me and Miller in the air conditioned media center and just point and laugh at all the poor people. Well, out may- there. Maybe if you finally decide to pay me some and something actually happens, then, you know, maybe I'll stop by. <sighs> yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to go auction off my, 2006 Acura TSX with 201,000 miles on it. I can come up with at least like two grand for you. So um, I'm going to get Dana Meekham's number from you. And dang it, I'm going on TV. Chris Wheeler is going to be my middleman. He might get that up to $2,200 for my man. That's spectacular. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, All right, let's go to the next question here. We actually wind down. I mean, I'm, I'm sure folks are glad to hear, uh, Brett Ross. All right. Now, Brett, I got to tell you, there's, there's a foul that you have done here. There is, uh, this, this isn't a yellow card moment. This is a red card. Your question, Seb, being from Le Mans, what's your first memories of the 24 hours of Le Mans? Great question. 
Only problem is you spelled Lamont as one word and with a lowercase m. Oh, there are a few things that drive me crazier than that. I don't know if it does for the guy from Le Mans, but uh, can you help folks understand that Lamont is two words and you capitalize the first one and the second one like you do with New York? Uh, Or have you given up? Uh, You know, I just... Yeah, you just made your case right there. Do you take pity on us stupid Americans, or 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 no? Yeah, we're, we're. I don't. I don't put people in big pots. I just. Uh, I, I think individuals. Oh, I think he just killed me on that one. That's great. Um, so, to Brett's question, what is your first memory of your beloved home race? Would I be right in guessing it had something to do with your dad, or no? No, no, it did not. Uh, my dad raced for the first time. I was uh, 12, I think. Yeah, 12. Oh, okay. Um, 12 or 13, I can't remember. Uh, but uh, no, that's, that's definitely not the first memory. The first memory, and I can't really tell you which year it was, but I guess I was like six or seven years old. Mm. Um, and then I remember we'd go uh, to the practice sessions, the qualifying sessions at night, and we'd go to either Arnage and, on, or Indianapolis Corner and, and Mulsanne uh, on the hills there on the outside because we lived like 10 minutes away. Um, and, you know, they always have those, you know, parking lots and, and natural hills there, and it's pretty cheap, and, and we used to go and watch for a few uh, a few hours and, and, and get home. Uh, so that, those are, those are my memories, you know, with, uh, with the glowing, uh, discs and, and stuff and, uh, and those, uh, those group C's. Beautiful. Did you have a favorite among the group C cars back then? Porsche 962s or anything else that you really loved? Uh, back then I really wasn't very knowledgeable about, uh, the 24 hours. The first time I kind of saw it was a bit, uh, and, and I remember more vividly, uh, it was like 89. Uh, no, it had to be, when was the first time the 905? It was 90, 1990? Yeah. Yeah, 1991. So 89 would have been the Mercedes win, the yeah. Sauber Mercedes. And so my, my dad used to race the 309 Peugeot Cup, um, which was before the start of the 24 hours uh on on the saturday morning and uh and i remember the first time that we went there it was still the old pits and uh wow. so I, I remember just you know we were parked at maison blanche uh, where they have the the porsche center there now and uh that was where the paddock was and then you you go in the cars with the mechanics and load the car up with all the stuff and and hole with like a an atv and get to the pits and and you know, I'd, I'd be with my dad and 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 racing his his thing, and and then we'd watch the start of the twenty four from from that paddock there. And I remember the those uh, those Mercedes for sure, but more more like the enthusiasm and everything from from the nine oh five days. Like you know, the first year when they went out, obviously everybody knew they would break, but they were quick as hell. And and it was that V ten was just spectacular sound, and it was a uh, as really when I started to kind of be like, man, this race is just really, really cool. I was going to say the sound of the, uh, the three and a half liter atmospheric V tens. Oh, they sounded so beautiful. Uh, and then as the, yeah, that was the, that was the base of the F one engine. So it was, it was pretty spectacular. 
I love hearing about this, man. This is so cool. Uh, Let's go to, all right, some guy you might have heard of. I'm not sure. The question comes in from Racer Spacer. Hey, Marshall, this is for the French fry. Is he friends with Simon Pagano? They're the only two Frenchmen in IndyCar. So does that give them a connection or no? Should we admit you know that guy? I mean, he's not, he's a pretty horrible person. He has, and he has been a failure as well in the sport. But do you at least like talk to him, make him feel good about himself sometimes? No, I try to make him feel terrible about himself. Are you kidding me? Uh, but uh, no, I mean, he's obviously, a, yeah, obviously he's a friend. And, um, and yeah, we do, we do have a, a pretty, uh, pretty long uh, history and relationship now. Uh, Seb was, Simon was very there. helpful uh, in Ooh. young Simon coming over this way. Yeah, at the end of 05. Yeah. At the end of 05 in Mexico city uh, when he first came over and, uh, and we just kind of gave him a little bit of guidance uh, with my dad and convinced his dad to kind of go all in for the 2006 uh, Atlantic season. Uh, and uh, it was kind of a, go big or go home <laughs> moment for him and uh, i won that championship in 06 and uh, and then we started to uh, see each other uh, on the same track uh, and uh, in the same championship the next year are you not surprised by simon's success but are you do you take anything from what he's achieved in the sport uh, i mean knowing looking at your career seb being with newman haas for so many years which is really the pinnacle team in champ car do you look at simon and at least just you know have fond thoughts or feelings of looking at where he's come how far he's come along and that he's driving for you know in our world team penske what's regarded as the big dominant team i'd have to believe you'd look at that and say wow this kid's truly uh, gone incredibly far from when i first met him yeah, of course. I mean, he's uh, he's obviously put in a, a huge amount of work, and he's he's created his opportunities. He uh, he stuck with with the you know the racing in the U.S. Uh, he only you know came to race uh, with us a little bit in the, in the Peugeot program, but uh, he always had his, his sights on on the, on IndyCar. And uh, you know, as soon as he got an opportunity, uh, with I think it was Dry and Rainbolt, and he, he did really good. And uh, and he got that ride with Schmidt and, and did really good with Ben over there. And, and then, uh, and then got a big break with, uh, with Penske and, uh, and then he made it happen there. You know, it was, uh, it was no, no easy job, obviously. And uh, Will was, uh, and still is, uh, at, uh, at his prime. And, uh, you know, he had, he had to beat him fair and square there. Um, so that, that was pretty impressive. And, uh, and then last year, obviously, uh, winning the 500, um, that was, uh, that was pretty, uh, pretty spectacular. Was uh, was really happy for him, and uh, what a, a cool celebration after once he, he came back uh, with that milk that I all dried up on him. <laughs> I was gonna say, did he leave any milk for you to drink, take a sip, anything like that? No, but there was definitely champagne in the, in the fifth wheel. Good, good man, good man. A couple more questions, Seb. Uh, the next two, uh, I think close to home for you robbie bergeron says seb what was it about the panos dpo1 chassis that clicked with you in your final season of champ car um i think honestly what really uh i enjoyed was the, the champ car days in general you know whether it was the lola or the panos although the panos was was really really cool to drive on the road courses uh, 
I don't know if it was because the, there was no viscous in the diff and we found out that obviously that was making mostly a ton of understeer and, and really not helping that very much on road courses, uh, which is the diff we were using in the Lola. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, for me, I think those cars really suited me because they had very limited, uh, um, they were not very front right height sensitive. Um, the COP wasn't, you know, shifting very much between braking, coasting, and 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 on power. And and I, I very much enjoy cars that are mostly kind of doing one thing and being consistent. Um, and so I think the fact that obviously those cars didn't have a flat bottom and they had the tunnels, um, they had that characteristic of not being very front right height sensitive. If you compare them to the the modern Indy cars, and um, and I think that's that's really what. I very much, you know, enjoyed and, and what suited me so well. Next question, which could stay with the Newman Haas days. I know you get asked for Newman Haas stories all the time. Maybe another team, Kevin Frederico says, Seb, any fun racing team stories come to mind you might share with us to help distract from this COVID-19 virus? <sighs> uh, I was going to say, you want to talk about memories. dragon racing? I don't know if that would fall under fun, but uh, they'd be entertaining. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, you know, there's there's some great memories, you know, even obviously at, at Dragon, you know, when, when we ended up on the podium uh, twice in a row at uh, Toronto, uh, then the first win with Scavey at, uh, at, uh, at Toronto as well. Um, I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's been a rocky ride, obviously, you know, we're with, you know, smaller teams and, and the, the chaos of obviously just uh, the funding that kind of comes and goes and and the uh, and the, the lack of stability with with the people and, and everything but i mean obviously um there's a reason why i enjoy racing in the states you know it's it's just the the format and, and the cars and and the spirit and in, in the team that i've obviously still have a a human size and and everything i mean for me that's that's kind of what does it I was going to say that really is a defining factor of your career, at least if we're talking success. You've been a part of a lot of teams, I think, looking at the ones where you've had the most success, bigger, small size teams as well, been scenarios where you aren't just employee number 53. You know, Obviously, as a driver, you get a lot of the attention, but there's some teams where you could almost say the drivers are a bit interchangeable. It seems to me, I don't know if you agree, but whether it's a Newman Haas or a KV or even a coin, the places where you could really play a bigger role, not just be the person who turns the steering wheel and then goes away, but really be plugged into the overall operation seems to suit you the best. Uh, a, do you agree? And B, do you enjoy that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I very much enjoy to not just be uh, the guy who just, you know, is put under the lights and, and just uh, and just turns the wheel. I, I first of all very much enjoy the, the development part, the, the 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 relationship with the engineers, with the mechanics, trying to trying to get the whatever wherever the car is at to the next level. Um, I don't know. I guess it's probably my engineering kind of side and, and just just liking the interaction and and trying to build something um you know i, I kind of <laughs> i kind of get 
to the end of a road with you know smaller operations where you kind of like maybe there is kind of a reason why smaller teams are staying smaller teams because they're just either not staying long enough together or they just don't have enough money period to just you know have the stability or or they just you know are these functionalities that just prevent them from going to the next step but um i guess i just you know i just like racing and uh you know, if if there is a, an opportunity with uh, you know J4 Racing, which is no small team, you know, don't be fooled. I mean, they they had plenty of money before, and they had you know they had great sponsors and everything. And it doesn't mean that you know because it's not really the case right now. It's not going to be in in the future. And there's definitely an history there. And I you know I I kind of uh, like uh, like my chances there. I love it. Let's see where should we go next. Well, we're going to stick with Toronto and Dragon Racing. Our pal Darren Dubois says, Seb, was there a story behind the giant burnouts you did at Toronto after finishing second for Dragon? He says, maybe it was at 2012 or 2013. Uh, I I mean, other than the great photo that I got of you and the freaking glass trophy falling off the base because they didn't tell you they weren't connected. Um I do recall you doing some really good roasty burnouts. Uh, do you recall there being any motive for that, or it just it seemed right at the time? You freaking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you know, for us it was like that elusive podium. You know, we just, you know, we kept being quick, and and you know, we we first of all we of all things we started with the Lotus engine. You remember what the text and emails you sent me after that first race? I mean, God, that was we still. Painful. We still have to record. I, I know once we get back to racing, well, who knows? Maybe we'll do it by phone, but I still need to get you in Serbia at least together to do a Lotus IndyCar podcast uh, because, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That yeah. Was, that was boogie right there. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, the stuff we had to overcome and and you know jay running out of, out of money obviously because we, he had to pay twice the engine lease you know switching from one engine manufacturer to to chevy halfway through the season and sharing the car with catherine where we were both supposed to do four seasons uh and then you know the next year um you know it's, it's just really things kind of not going well and and my buddy neil five just having another kid and just like kind of getting the total burnout of 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 himself and and so tom brown jumping in and helping out and then you know finally we're there like we're on the podium in toronto it just felt like winning man i mean <laughs> i had not been in that position obviously uh, um in in quite some time and uh and it felt uh, yeah it just felt like a win darren do you love the fact that i was there and completely forgot the whole backstory, so I get to really sound even more stupid than usual in asking that when I should have known the answer. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, let's go to our final question from our pal Howard Bennett, and it's a random one. He even says it's very random. Uh, but hey, he says, in these self-isolation and lockdown times, do you have any tales to cheer us up about 1970s Formula One and later sports car racing legend Jean-Pierre Jarier? He says uh, he was super quick in his day, sometimes too quick, but a real character and also a good guy, I believe. And his nickname was Jumper uh, because he used to always jump the starts in Formula One. So I realize this is just a question because he's French and you're French, but curious if good old Jean-Pierre 
a part of your uh, your appreciation or anything you might share for Howard. Jean-Pierre Jabouille or Jarier, you said? Jarier. Jarier, yeah, actually, <laughs> funny, uh, funny you asked. I mean, Jabouille, I know him a little bit, but uh, he was obviously a, a really, really quick guy. He's in the same generation as uh, as Pescarolo and stuff, but I, I never really been in close contact with him. Obviously, Pescarolo, I know him very well. Um, but uh, Jean-Pierre Jarier was... Uh, uh, I kind of recycled himself in, in being kind of the Porsche specialist uh, in the uh, kind of 90s and, and late 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, it so happens that I did my first 24-hour race uh, of Le Mans with him in, in a Porsche GT2. Really? And, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was I was a young Formula 3 kind of, you know, just never really done anything else than... The quickest car I'd driven was a Formula 3, and then all of a sudden I jump in a Porsche GT2 uh, with twin turbos and 550 horsepower, and, <laughs> and it's like I've never driven the car. I don't know the big track because I've never, you know, obviously you just can't practice it. And uh, and there you go, let's go. And uh, and I mean it was it was really cool, but you know, so it was kind of a you know, a tough situation. It's always the same. Uh, you get the, the young gun coming and, and, you know, being pretty quick and, and you're the benchmark and everybody's, you know, relying on you to just make everything happen. And, and, you know, it's the, the, the young kid was, you know, full tanks and stuff kind of goes out and runs about the same speed as you, you know, you, the reference, uh, uh, our turning and uh, so I wasn't I don't think I was uh, I was too very popular with Jean-Pierre <laughs> I don't know I don't know what is wrong with me I'm forgetting all these things because I remember the Porsche because you've told me about the the Porsche experience before but uh, I've forgotten it was with good old Jumper and, oh, yeah, and that, that same year I mean the Dumbrake ends up taking off in front of me <laughs> and and actually if you in in the race and if you actually watch the replay it's on YouTube you can you can find it it's me in the car, and and when he lands pretty far off the racetrack, the dirt kicks over the racetrack, over the guardrail, and I get some on the windscreen. I mean, talk about no something crazy right there. Way. Yep, sir. <laughs> that was me. And all along, my dad is just like praying to God that nothing happens because, you know, he had sold to my mom, who was very reluctant. Oh, uh, you know, I was 20 years old easy. during the 24 hours. You know, it's like, yeah, but he's in a GT car, it's safe, and this and that. And, you know, sure enough, that happens. And he's like, oh, God, what have I done? And <laughs> so, you're crazy enough to have come back. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I know you're not a man of higher faith, but that might have been someone saying, Sebastian, don't do this anymore. And yet you came back. How crazy. Wow. So between pissing off your veteran, you know, racing legend uh, teammate, to mercedes flying through the air and you having to duck and dodge wow yeah, that was a pretty eventful race and then uh our our other teammate uh had a had a big uh six to uh, it was, it was six fifth he went six third and that gearbox in that porsche was really treacherous and uh the uh, engine didn't like that so we ended up uh we ended up retiring at like 1 a.m or something like that there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse than that. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to crash out or have something blow up, have it in the first couple hours. So at least you don't no, get a no, taste. No, are you kidding me? Oh, dude, 
Like uh, we've we've had it way worse than that. Like at one a.m. that's fine. Try that at two p.m. when you're on the podium with the Pescaolo. That that is heartbreaking right there. Oh, I've had. Trust me, brother. I've had my fair share of three a.m. gearbox explosions, uh, all manner of things failing, and yeah, I can just say that uh, there are times where I wish it had happened early so we could at least get home and you know get a nice meal before uh, Sunday arrives. Well, I guess I can't call you a bad father anymore. Um, or hopefully you'll be less of a bad father. Are you going to keep doing this? Are you going to keep putting in a thousand hours a week to get a 10th here and a 10th there at round three and round four? Are you just going to dial it back and go, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to spend more time chasing the cat with my son. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I, I asked Jeff Wright to try and put the brakes on the thing to try and limit the amount of time that we could spend and, and, and everything. But, um, it's, it's obviously not happening because right now iRacing is just producing new sessions that feed into the next one. And, and it seems like it's 24 seven. So, um, I'm, I'm definitely turning it off at night, but, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's very, very time consuming. <laughs> And do you need a physio at all? Like, you know, are, no, are like no, okay. your wrists sore, no, your you, ankles? You know, if you want to come and, and fly and, you know, give me a little massage, I guess, you know, I won't say no. But, is that you know. something you really want? This is the most disturbing thing you've ever said. Uh, you know, I miss you, bro. I mean, I, oh, I miss you, you too. My big greasy ass flying across a country to show up and give you a massage. That sounds like the thing of nightmares. I'd show up in clown makeup and red hair just to thoroughly scare you from ever mentioning that again. I don't know what to say. All right. Well, I think we've reached the bottom. That is, that is my dear friend, Sebastian Bourdais. You know him as a guy who's won a bunch of races and championships. You also know him as our French fry, me, I'm your hamburger. You know that a big old patty, by the way, of hamburger also knows Marshall Pruitt. This is our week in IndyCar. This is our second show of the week. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I did except for the last part. Uh, and don't picture me showing up as a clown, giving you massages. Uh, we're going to say thank you to Cooper tires, the justice brothers, Toronto motorsports.com and bell racing helmets, USA. I guess we'll be seeing how you do tomorrow or who knows? This might be today when people listen to it. Uh, I cannot wait for the text exchange after the barber race to see how things went. 